0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I am actually in The Washington Post offices, so I am both discombobulated and excited to be returning to normal. Woo.
2: I'm just happy to be
1: talking about movies with friends.
0: Uh, In lieu of controversies and non-troversies this week, we're going to open with something slightly different, a discussion of the great Richard Donner, who passed away on Monday at the age of 91. Uh, Richard Donner is one of the last great Hollywood craftsmen, the sort of guy who could work in pretty much any genre, uh, nail it, and move on to the next one. He made the first really successful big-budget superhero movie, the Christopher Reeve Superman flicks, uh, before reinvigorating the buddy cop genre with the R-rated Lethal Weapon movies, um, moved on to a Western with Maverick, uh, and, and in the midst of all this he, he knocked out a beloved kiddie flick The Goonies uh, I want to highlight The Goonies just for a moment. Uh, not because it's his best movie. Indeed, I think it's generally considered um, an almost acceptable nostalgia flick, but not really good in the traditional sense of the word uh, when people say good. And that's fine. Um, but I want to highlight it because it's so damned efficient. In the opening, I don't know, it's like 10 or 15 minutes of the movie, uh, which is about a group of kids who go looking for pirate treasure so they can save their homes from foreclosure. Donner does something kind of remarkable. He introduces us to the villains, to the geography of the whole town, which is very important to the plot, to the stakes the heroes are fighting for, and to most of the protagonists as well. And he does so in the midst of an exciting for a kid's movie, Car Chase. Um, Again, the efficiency here is remarkable. Surely some of the kudos should go to screenwriter Christopher Columbus. Um, But Columbus himself was really never able to conjure up anything quite that efficient on the big screen in the director's chair. Uh, Again, The Goonies, not a great movie exactly. but Donner puts the whole thing on rails and it rolls smoothly on, along the tracks for the uh, all, entirety of its nearly two hour run time. Peter, what what do you think of when you think of Richard Donner?
2: So I guess you know, you use the word craftsmanship. I would say that the the thing that I think uh, stands out about him is his exceptional competence. And this is something that I like I mean that in as a as a great compliment to a film director um which is that he was somebody who came in and was very rarely showy and yet every little bit in in his films just would work was sort of was was functional it looked like it had been it was well executed right and so you can think about um You can think about uh, the opening scene in Lethal Weapon and the very first one, which introduces us to, you know, uh, the sort of post-Mad Max Mel Gibson as he's becoming a big American star. And it's this whole sequence at like a a Christmas tree purchase uh, uh, store, right? And... It's just maniac and great. It gives you such a good sense of um, of, of Mel Gibson's character. I, it's this before or after the the woman jumps off the the building. Maybe it's the second scene. But in any case, it's like it's just such a great little character introduction and it's super exciting um, and super efficient. And then you have, you know, sort of a decade or so later when he's doing Lethal Weapon 4. Uh, he's so good at ma- at making movies is the lesson of Lethal Weapon 4 that he doesn't even need a script to do it. And so somewhat famously, the deal to do Lethal Weapon 4 came together before they had a script in place. So he was just like, all right, screw this. What would be funny? And let's do it. So he decided to have them to have uh, to have uh, Merton Riggs do an action scene set at a gas station in which they're fighting some pyro guy who's just showed up and decided to start burning and blowing stuff up at a gas station. The uh, the visual motif of that movie is just incredible. By the way, if you look stuff catching on fire and then shooting into the air, really like sort of spectacularly and unbelievably just happens all the time. It's kind of wonderful. And so they start shooting this action scene and then after about two weeks, the script is finally delivered and you can watch it. And if you know this, you can tell because all of the plot relevant bits are delivered via cut-ins and close-ups that they clearly shot after the main action scene, um, right? And were interspersed with the thing that he developed. But he's he's a guy who can just sort of come in and envision a scene and envision and envision some right, good stuff for characters to do that will keep audiences entertained, even if there is literally no script to work from. Um, and he's also somebody who, if, it's you talked about him being able to work in any genre. I think the other thing that sort of stands out if you look at his full filmography is that he was able to work as a as a franchise director. He was happy to 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 make sequels and just, just sort of do projects that you could think of, you know, on paper are kind of cash-ins, especially something like Lethal Weapon 4, which is let's make another Lethal Weapon because Lethal Weapon movies make money. Um at the same time, he's also somebody who isn't simply stuck making, uh, making boring, bland movies in the franchise machine. He makes a lot of originals and not every one of them, even if they are successful, not every one of them leads to a sequel and expanded universe, etc. I made this joke on Twitter about how that, that efficient opening 10 minutes of the Goonies could have been uh, done much better as a series you know, as a prequel trilogy, yeah. plus a bunch of uh, spin-off films. And the thing Origins. is, The Goonies, an origin story. The Goonies origins, and then each character gets their own film. And the thing is, if you had a movie like that, a kid's genre hit today— That would be the thinking that would come out of a film like that Um, would be, okay. how can we take this movie? And instead of telling the story succinctly and efficiently, how can we expand it and blow it up into something that's sort of miniseries like that lasts forever where you keep on making Goonies movies, uh, you know, for uh, until the end of time? And Donner was just as comfortable not doing that and just making one offs that worked on their own terms um, as he was making Superman, Superman 2 and a quartet of lethal weapon films yeah uh,
0: you know he's he, his career and life and the things people are saying about him after the fact are a testament to the fact that you can be a decent person in Hollywood Alyssa I mean I I, I don't know if you've seen any of the, the the remembrances but I mean it's just like it's one of these things where like you have great directors who are jerks and I think nobody would deny that. But you also have a guy like Richard Donner, who is a great director and not a jerk. And I think there's something to be said for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, I don't have particularly strong feelings about Donner movies, with the probably the exception of the first Superman, um, which I think is notable in part because you know Christopher Reeve gives such a wonderful performance in that role, and Donner, you know, kind of creates space to play him as you know, someone who is a hero but is also kind of a tender figure um, in a way that's genuinely really lovely. And what strikes me most sort of looking back at his filmography is, you know, just thinking about the idea of superhero and action movies not as these ginormous corporate productions, but as something that, you know, could be made with a little bit more personality and heart, Um And, you know, a a frequent complaint of mine on this podcast and elsewhere is the extent to which Marvel and DC, Marvel in particular, kind of hoovers up these talented young directors who have made an indie film or two that has been successful and kind of, you know, assimilates them Borg-like into the Marvel House style. And, you know, both Lethal Weapon, the Lethal Weapon movies and the Superman movies... Feel like Richard Donner movies, right? They feel sort of specific and human um, and personality driven rather than, you know, something that we kind of acquiesce to. And I would probably feel more enthusiastic about franchise movie making right now if it had a little bit more of that personality and sort of individuality. And if I didn't just feel like I was. You know, strapping in for the latest Marvel roller coaster because that's what I have to do every week.
2: So I, you know, th- to to pick up on that, Alyssa, Superman works because it's uncynical, because it's character based, and because it makes an effort to connect with ordinary viewers. Yep. Right. And this is this is the thing. Maybe you know, now that I'm thinking about it, that that he did so well across so many movies was he wasn't he, he wasn't making art films or even like Oscar bait you know that were like these deep character studies but every one of his movies has very specific very well-drawn characters and also always gives like a, a normie American movie viewer something to to latch on and you think about Lethal Weapon sure is built around Mel Gibson's crazy cop but right but first of all there's a there is a real darkness to that character that is yep. partly Mel Gibson, but is that is also like it's it feels kind of emotionally real, even though it grows a little more cartoony, cartoony in later versions. But there is there is Danny Glover's Murtaugh and his yep. s- his incredibly decent and ordinary black middle class American family yep. that is just that is that is also at the heart of that film and that is that is there for for ordinary middle-class viewers who are not like crazy, semi-suicidal crime fighters to connect with. And so he's always grounding all of these things, even when he's working on elevated genre fare that is just, that's fantastical or that's, you know, sort of, um, that's, That doesn't really have anything to do with uh, the life of a normal person or a normal viewer. He always gives that normal viewer something to connect with. And that's true whether it's in a very optimistic, very uncynical, sort of not hard-edged movie like Superman, or whether it's in a quite brutal, you know, um, hard-edged, R-rated film like the Weapon.
0: Yeah, I, the other thing I think that helps create that audience surrogacy and audience uh, feeling of companionship is that Richard Donner is a surprisingly funny director. Yeah. He didn't he didn't direct a ton of straightforward comedies. I mean, there there's Scrooge, which is probably my favorite uh, adaptation of the Dickens uh, Christmas Carol. Um, but uh, you know, most of his movies are action films or you know again westerns, uh, Superman. You we're we're talking about stuff that that is not strictly speaking a comedy movie, but Lethal Weapon is hilarious. Lethal Weapon is a deeply deeply funny movie. All the Lethal Weapon movies are, and that's before you know Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci of all people is added as like the the uh, comic
2: sidekick and in then the Chris third one. And then Chris Rock in the in and then the Lethal Chris Weapon Rock 4, in the fourth, who is yeah. who is genuinely great playing a you know a, a suitor to uh, Murtaugh's daughter. Right. Uh
0: you know, but I, I again it's he he creates these he creates these movies that are both extremely competent and also very funny, which helps keep the audience uh, involved and he does it with really great comic timing. Comic timing's not easy. Like it's not there, you can you can watch I mean I I would say most comedies don't have very good comic timing at this point, which is a uh, sad state. Sad comment on the state of everything, but uh, but Richard Donner's movies, uh, even even like I, I saw somebody was sharing a a clip from the the original Superman. It was basically a two minute uh, shot in the Daily Planet offices, and it's just Perry White kind of running around, you know, doing doing the uh, morning routine of an editor, or I guess the late afternoon routine of the editor on deadline, saying like, "Great story, we need this copy, get this over," and it's just perfect. It's just it's just I don't I don't love the Superman movies but I like I like aspects of them and and the thing I I I really do like is the way they kind of treat the Daily Planet as a as a, a a journalism operation
2: I think um one of the things that he managed to do really well in the first Superman film that was influential for a couple of decades was to understand that the villain was as interesting as the hero and that these movies needed to have big um needed to have big, very memorable villains, Uh, and so we got Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, who was at the time, you know, sort of, right, he was, it wasn't, he was a big, he was a big star, but he was, he's also um, somebody who was understood as like a sort of an Academy Award Oscar type, you know, type actor, and this is how we then later got Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and this idea that the villain was as much the star of the film sort of persisted right up until about the Marvel movies, which have always struggled to create great villains with probably with the, a couple of exceptions, including Tom Hiddleston's Loki. Um, who is and, now a hero. Right. Who is, who, who they just, who was so popular that they yeah. decided to make him a hero. That's exactly right. And his, his idea that, that villains should, uh, should in some ways be the salt of a film, Right. Um, and should provide the the interesting flavor on top of the you know the uh, the prime rib of of the superhero. Um. Was was the correct one and is one that I think that the Marvel movies, for all they have learned some of the lessons of the early Superman films, of the Donner Superman films. They've learned, uh, you know, not to be too cynical. They've learned that comedy is very important. Uh, they've learned to make the characters nicely and well-defined and to give them some little human trait to the extent you can. I think Marvel movies aren't quite as good at it as Donner was. Um, but they've learned a bunch of those lessons and borrowed a bunch from those early Superman films. But they have forgotten, I think— that the villain really needs to stand out and be villainous and be bad. It is enjoyable to watch a bad guy be bad and then get what's coming to him, which well, is what be, happened to Gene Hackman, Lex Luthor.
1: And to be bad in a way that specifically contrasts with um, yeah. Superman's goodness, right? I mean, Lex Luthor doesn't, is willing to destroy the city where his mother lives, whereas Superman is willing to turn back the entire Earth, to save Lois Lane.
0: I'm not sure about the functions... Uh, of time travel in that. Speaking of time travel, good transition, thank you. Uh, We're going to talk about the Tomorrow War in a second, but first I'm going to read this ad. I got an ad for you. Uh, If you enjoy... This show, and who doesn't? It's great. Uh, Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a special bonus members-only episode about great movie presidents tied to the July 4th holiday. Uh, I'll be honest, the whole thing is mostly just an excuse for me to talk about our greatest film president, Thomas Whitmore, uh, and how he is also our greatest Republican film president. Why? You'll have to listen to find out. Uh, Now on to the main event, The Tomorrow War, starring Chris Pratt... Uh, and debuting this week, last week, this weekend, uh, on Prime Video. The Tomorrow War could be described in several different ways. Uh, It's a high-concept, star-powered sci-fi movie about desperate humans from the future traveling back in time to recruit soldiers to fight a group of aliens known as the White Spikes that have overrun planet Earth and are on the verge of wiping out humanity. Uh, It's an extended metaphor for global warming and climate change, with signs of the climate apocalypse used as both set dressing and in the plot mechanics. Uh, Mostly, though, it's a dad movie. This is a movie about fathers and their children and what it means to teach them how to exist in the world. As the film opens, Pratt is frustrated by his place in the world. He's a veteran and he's a scientist. He wants to make a difference. He thinks he's bound for something greater than what he's doing, which is just kind of, you know, at home being a dad. Uh, But he finds himself stymied, unable to accomplish what he wants. Uh, He loves his family and he would never abandon them like his father, played by J.K. Simmons, uh, who abandoned him. And yet, he is forced to do just that when called up for service by the worldwide draft instituted order to to fight the White spikes in the future. His seven-day tour of duty doesn't sound so bad. Hey, it's just seven days. Uh, at least until you realize that 70% of those sent forward through time don't return at all. Uh, but it's on this jump to the future that he finds his purpose. He goes, he learns about himself, he suffers a loss in the process, and he brings back the tools needed to save humanity, and he does all of that in 100 minutes. Yes, at minute 100, I was like, wait, this movie's over, right? How is there 40 minutes left? How is there 40 minutes left in this movie? Um, and yet... Yet, I thought the Tomorrow War earned that extended runtime, just uh, so <laughs> by driving home the themes of fatherly devotion and sacrifice. Uh, it's got more J.K. Simmons. It's got more jacked J.K. Simmons, uh, and it 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 uh, tells a. I think it tells a story, a good and decent story about. Uh, The need to build a better world for our children and our need to be there to guide them through it. Um, I won't say it's quite as weepy as Arrival or Interstellar, uh, two movies that get me right in the feels every time I watch them, but it's not far off. Uh, Alyssa, am I simply unable to watch movies objectively now because I have suffered uh, the onslaught of emotions? Come with fatherhood. Uh, a, uh, what did you make of The Tomorrow War?
1: So, I normally try to be pretty good about concentrating on movies while I'm watching them. But I honestly watched The Tomorrow War with sort of an eye and a half while cleaning out my email inbox after a vacation, uh, which I think was probably the perfect way to watch it. That was about as much attention as it deserved. And it was too much. Mildly diverting from a completely routine set of tasks that has to be done. Um, yeah, Sonny, I think you're a SAP. Um, I think That's it. That's I it. think I'm a SAP now. I think you're done. Um, you know, hang it up. <laughs> the whole Sunny bunch personality is going to have to be retired, and you're going to like start reviewing lifetime movies. Um, I, I think this. that is your future career path. Um, no, I mean I I understand the draw of a movie about a father connecting with his daughter, especially over STEM fields. Yay. Feminism, girl boss, nonsense. (laughs) Just shoot me in the face already. But God, there are so many better sci-fi movies about fathers and daughters and, you know, daughters who have been separated from their fathers, trying to figure out their own paths. I mean, you know, like contact is a vastly better, you know. Movie on this particular set of themes. And I think there is actually something very interesting to be said that it is so often um, fathers and daughters reconnecting or, you know, sort of navigating their relationships around each other in sci-fi movies rather than fathers and sons. And I don't actually think that that's something that's particularly driven by the whole, you know, women in STEM, like feminism, white stuff that we hear a lot of. Um, There seems to be, I mean, there's some sort of interesting thread about those relationships working better with some distance or with, or at minimum being improved by some perspective or loss um, that I think is very interesting. But this movie is just not that at all. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's like a dumb script and a dumb setup. Um, but I also just, I find Chris Pratt to be kind of a void as an action leading man. Um,
0: wow. And, Hard disagree on that. That is, I find that shocking.
1: Um, and I mean, I like... Pratt a lot and I think some of that comes from liking Pratt a lot as a comic actor right like he plays a role he's very good at playing a kind of role that is both hard to land and increasingly sort of less of ill for men which is this kind of stunted naif who you kind of root to see grow up right i mean he was incredibly good in that role as andy dwyer on parks and recreation he is really charming like he's a big part of the reason that the lego movie which has no right to work at all um and is like perhaps the only successful piece of revitalized like totally random ip um we can argue about the transformers movies but um you know, and th- again, that works because of entirely because of his voice performance. Um, I think he, you know, he's reasonably appealing to me um, as Peter Quill in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. But watching him get sort of sucked through the Hollywood genericizer and emerge as, like, yet another, like, pretty jacked leading guy has been just incredibly dulling to me. Um And I just—I don't think the—the funny—you know, we were talking about Richard Donner's movies being funny, and the funny material in this movie is sort of not that funny and not that well integrated into the overall vibe of the film. Um, And the sort of self-seriousness Pratt has to portray here does not—he doesn't serve it very well, and it doesn't serve him terribly well either,
0: what do you what do you think of him in the Jurassic World movies?
1: I have not seen them.
0: Uh-huh. Uh okay. I mean, I uh, I I strongly disagree on the Chris Pratt thing. Who I think is actually pretty good in this, like. He's not Harrison Ford, because nobody is Harrison Ford. Yes, but uh, that, I think you, the
1: three of us can agree that there is only one Harrison Ford,
0: yeah, but I, I think he's I think he's pretty good here. I don't know. I know Peter, you did not care for this. And I said you were wrong on Twitter, and people agreed with me. So that means that you're wrong. Oh, I said right? you were wrong
2: on Twitter and people agreed with
0: me. <laughs> no, that's not how this works. My anecdote is better. I think there are multiple uh,
2: Harrison Fords in Loki but that's maybe a topic for another episode. Um, I, uh, I did not like this movie and I liked it less the more I thought about it. It was, I found it vaguely tolerable, maybe, uh, kind of eye rolly, uh, kind of, uh, I paid more attention to it than Alyssa did and felt like I shouldn't have. Um, and, uh, while I was watching it. And the more I thought about it afterwards and also the longer it went on, the less I liked it. And I thought the third act was a real mistake. Yes, J.K. Simmons is in it and he is in many ways the best part of the movie showing up just once in the first act and then as a supporting player in the third act. Um, But the third act just doesn't really need to be there. It's not a very good sequence. Um, It's not very exciting. And it's it's a it's forty minutes to to make a point that could have been made in a coda to uh, to an hour and forty five minute film. Um, and that, I think, is sort of the the thing that bugged me most thinking about the movie afterwards was that this movie is it's not a message movie. It's not preachy in in the sort of uh, let's uh, have a monologue that explains the big political idea. It is, however, so slavishly devoted to its metaphor that it doesn't bother to do anything else. And so this movie raises all sorts of interesting kind of logical world-building questions. Um, and clearly there was some, at least at least some level of thought to the, to the post-apocalyptic future world that the white spikes have overrun, given because there's all of these kind of environmental details that you see a little bit in the background, like the big base that they have out in the ocean that's surrounded by a wall that doesn't appear to do anything anything at all to stop the white spikes when they finally get there? Like, yeah. not one thing. Why did they build a big wall? Who know? Because they need... Because it, it looks cool Keep to have out a big the wall. Right, sure. Um, and... You don't want sharks in your base. Come on. And the, But the movie doesn't have any real interest in its story or its premise. Um, instead, it has... Uh, its interest is in its metaphor, in this idea that uh, to save the future, we have to act today. And so every single thing in the film is built around this very simple, uh, like, you know, like I said, a kind of a a crappy global warming metaphor um, in which it's all about the responsibility of today's parents to save everything for the kids in the future. And if we don't, then the aliens are going to attack because the temperature, because climate change is going to melt the tundra in Russia or something. And I just felt like the movie was so enamored of its central metaphor that it didn't bother to actually make a very good movie. I don't think the action scenes are very good. I don't think it's very funny that, I, I mean, Alyssa said that the comedy didn't really fit in here. It almost feels like they shot it to be removed. If you watch all of those sequences, they are cutaways that can just be edited out if they didn't feel like they, they worked. And for whatever reason, they left them in and ended up with a movie that's with, with two hours and
1: 20-something minutes. With the exception of the Volcano Obsessed Kid. Um,
2: the Volcano Obsessed Kid is fine and, yeah. you know, might have made a good you know, at turn into act three, right? Like he yeah. is there at, you know, when we move from act two to act three to help us figure out that, Oh, we need to go to the Russian tundra here right. now and everything. And that's fine. All, I, cute, mean, I, guess, all
1: I mean, that, is that was the only piece that was like remotely yeah. comic, but was just important to the plot. Yeah.
2: But yeah. I, I just felt like this movie was, it was, it was a bunch of metaphor service. Um, and it, And as a result, all of the actual content, all of the ideas, the action scenes, the humor, even the relationship between the father and the daughter felt pro forma and perfunctory to me. They just felt like... I didn't actually care about it. They were there because somebody said, "Oh, we need a, a father-daughter heartwarming relationship. Let's put see, but Chris this is, Pratt in a shawl-collar sweater and make his daughter kind of cute about science stuff." And like that, they didn't go any further than that. There's nothing specific or real like to actually connect me to these characters or make me see. Care. But this is
0: this is why I have to disagree with you about the last. Really, it's a fourth act because this movie has three acts and then a fourth act. Uh, that that takes place in Russia, uh, but the, the the this is why that fourth act is necessary because the 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 heart of the movie is the is not the uh, global warming metaphor which is amusingly. I, 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 you know, look. Points points for trying to say something, um, I guess. Yes, yeah, so and to but be clear, like the- I don't.
2: I am not bothered by movies that have metaphors or uh, political messages, or even you know, uh, political messages that one might perceive as being on the left or anything like that. I like I I love John Carpenter's '80s films, all of which are like big mm-hmm. political
0: metaphors. The the global warming metaphor is very funny to me because it posits a global warming uh, problem. The solution which, uh, to which is guns and poison, um, which is very funny. I just first oh, off that's stunning. just that's that's amusing just on its own. But the but the other the other problem with this metaphor is that the idea behind it is the totally. Ass backwards wrong way of solving global warming. If you believe that climate change is a problem, the solution is not to say to the current generation, all right, we're gonna have your standard of living. We're just gonna, we're gonna destroy how you live. The future the the way to do it, and and the, the the metaphor here is we're gonna send people into the future and they're literally gonna die trying to stop, you know, climate change, whatever. Um, the 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 real solution to the problem is you we're going to maintain everybody's standard of living and we're gonna reduce emissions. But like that is obviously not terribly cinematic. So it's it's a bad it's a it's it, it it kind of fails as a message movie because it's pushing
2: the wrong message. I mean, I also felt like the action scenes here were not terribly cinematic, and this is the, they were they were very fine, generic. But, but it's fine. But even just a few days later. I'm struggling to remember like very specific beats. I can remember oh there's the one where they fight the capture the queen of this, and the of, part and of the, the problem here
0: is because we're watching, this, we're watching this we're watching this on right? TVs at home. We're not watching this on on uh, a big IMAX screen which originally this was going to be a theatrical movie they uh, I think Paramount ended up selling it to uh, or somebody ended up selling it to uh, Skydance maybe so ended up selling it to uh, Amazon because they were like, "Well, we can't put anything in theaters. We need to make some money." But the but the but the problem is watching this on a on a TV screen or on your laptop. You know the the white spikes overrunning the base. It looks like a bunch of ants on an anthill. I mean, literally. That's like I was just like, I I, I don't know, it, man. I'm not
1: I'm not sure this one would have looked. Better on a big screen where the sort of flimsiness, the effects were more apparent. And if I can add sort of a pet peeve that ties into the some of the thematic concerns, I really hate aliens movies that are just, oh, the aliens are like mindless killing machines, right? And part of what is frustrating about the inability of this movie to stick the landing is that if you had the reveal earlier that the like the white spikes were themselves a form of sort of terraforming or planetary engineering and contrasted that with the way that humanity is treating the planet and preparing for climate change, then you actually maybe have an interesting both like sort of message and action movie, but it's literally a throwaway like, oh, okay, That's what these things are. Let's blow them up. And there's no sort of attention or interest to the actual intelligent species behind this that had a plan and screwed it up. Um, I mean, if anything, the third act should have been sort of the second act and a setup for an overall sort of clash of civilizations and approaches um, where you have an alien species that is treating humanity the way that we treat the rest of the biosphere and turns out, like... No, no kidding we don't like that very much
2: yeah i mean i also just don't think they make very interesting or formidable villains and the idea that they have to come up with some sort of um some sort of like special poison basically to kill the queens doesn't really make any sense in the context of a world where even in the future after humanity has been mostly decimated, they pretty much just use guns to kill them and they have yeah. some bombers that they use that like appear to be quite effective against them. And so it's really hard to imagine this a scenario in which we have a full-fledged functional, you know, American, Russian, Chinese, like all, all the world's militaries at, at the beginning of the process before the white spikes have overrun also humanity. Also a lot of
1: nuclear weapons. Right. Like let a, we a lot of nuclear again, weapons. Again, I'm not
2: saying that I think the white spikes would necessarily have been easily dispatched and that human, like it would not have left a scar on humanity, but it just seems like the technology to destroy them exists quite easily and is mostly ignored. And we like, and this movie, I mean, again, they're quite technologically advanced in the future. They built this huge base. They built a time travel machine that has a whole bunch of, of rules that they just sort of explain away that don't make any sense at all. And, and it's, I, I am typically I'm typically like not somebody who's like, oh, all the physics need to work exactly at like real physics work in my fantasy action movies. At the same time, they need to be internally consistent. And so if you yeah. show if you show me bombers dropping, you know, napalm or whatever it is, uh, big explosive ordinances uh and killing a big group of, of aliens and make it relatively easily, then you need to show me why that's not a viable solution to killing the rest of the aliens.
1: Yeah. I also yeah, just I, think... I,
2: I, yeah. Yeah. Sorry.
1: I was just also going to say the alien design is such a collection of, like, these are things that Americans, that, like, humans find disturbing, right? Like... You know, sort of detachable jaws and lots of teeth and things that move in an ungainly way. And they're so sort of slapped together that they don't actually come across as nearly as scary as they should be, right? I mean, if you think back to the Alien movies, you know, just the design there is so thoughtful and unnerving. And again, like sort of the way they kill is so related to the themes of sort of birth and motherhood um and here it's just like here's a collection of scary traits right um and it's just it's such a boring way of thinking about alienness and fear um that I found the movie just much less unnerving right these are supposed to be the creatures that are so scary that you can't show present humanity a picture of them because people would just give up and I'm like sorry, I've seen this particular CGI monstrosity before. Like, I you look at it and you see, like, not that I would prefer to encounter something like that <laughs> in the real world, um, because I would definitely die incredibly quickly, but it's so obvious that they just sort of picked it, like, this thing moves wrong, and it has tentacles and weird jaws that the design almost, bec- it undercuts itself. Yeah, um, I
2: mean, they they, they don't, make an effort to show you the terror of the thing, even, even design-wise, it's shot really badly. So you think about the alien movies. And for one thing, you know, the first one famously, they they thought that the full-on alien shots did not look great. So there are very few fully lit full-on shots of the monster moving. But what they did were they showed you parts and pieces of it, often in in quite slow-moving shots where you could just sort of hang on the deep weirdness of that Giger design. Um, and, you know, same even in Aliens, which is uh, a much more, you know, action-packed film, a much faster-moving movie. But you can even think about something like A Quiet Place Part Two, which has a similarly CG- um, uh kind of looking a uh, bio monster uh, um uh, it is a modern effects monster in that film and it moves really quite quickly but there are also these bits where John Krasinski as director just slows down the action and makes it it's not just about the the monster kind of rushing towards you and like destroying a bunch of stuff instead what it is is about the monster searching and moving and each beat each movement of the arm or the eyes or the sound ear things that it's made up of we focus on those for a minute so that we can so that we can understand how deeply terrifying they actually are and this movie just doesn't have any interest in exploring the physical mechanics of either its creature or its future world yeah
0: i agree that the creature design not great uh, on this, but you're, you're both wrong about everything else. Sorry. Sorry. That's what, I, that's what it comes down to. So what do we think? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on The Tomorrow War? Peter.
2: I just want to say first, I think it's a controversy that Richard Donner died. And we, yes. never, we never talked about that. We but never it's, addressed it's that. It's deeply yes. controversial. That Richard Donner shouldn't die.
1: Mortality is a controversy. Um,
2: yes, yeah. I totally agree with that. Second of all, uh, I think this is a terrible movie. Uh, Alyssa.
1: Uh, it is perfectly serviceable for having on in the background while you complete another task. So, thumbs down?
0: Thumbs laundry.
1: Yeah, thumbs laundry.
0: Uh, (laughs) I give it a thumbs up. You're both cynics. Heartless cynics who hate things that are good, uh, like this. All right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on our favorite movie presidents. Uh, And make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow good podcasts. And we want to grow, because if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at SunnyBunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.